Have you seen this? Maybe, maybe not. Lucky for you, we're going over our top five best and least favorite movies from our first 100 episodes. Welcome to Have You Seen This? The world's only podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten media. All discussions will be spoiler heavy. You have been warned. This show would not be possible without the support of our patrons. If you would like to support our show, join us at patreon.com slash have you seen this. For just $5 a month, get access to our Discord and all three episodes every month covering movies you've never heard of. Or maybe wish you hadn't. That's right, it's a clip show. <laughs> we finally ran out of ideas. We're the podcast that spent two episodes covering Bob Gale's Interstate 60, but we finally ran out of content. I think we squeezed like four hours worth out of that movie, too. It's it's like if you watch that movie three times. Yeah. You would get our, yeah, you would approach the amount of time they spent watching it. We've covered a lot of movies and things that aren't movies on this podcast. And out of all of them, there are a few that we were genuinely surprised by. So in this episode, we're recapping five of our most and worst favorite movies. I think most, most favorite is um, pretty self-explanatory. They're genuinely good. Worst favorite? Um, movies that are not good, but we're nevertheless compelled to talk about. Maybe so bad it's good, or just so bad I can't make my point vociferously enough how much I hate Mad Dog Time. We'll get into that later. By the way, there's a... If you join our Patreon, there is a category on our posts that is called Tim Hated It. So if you want to know which ones Tim really, really, really didn't care for. Yeah, spoiler alert. Go click on that. Click, like, subscribe, do everything on it. But uh, I'm going to go through these in order because I have my list of five. I also have some honorable mentions. Yeah, I did the same thing going off your example. Um, and th- this we're doing our best, most, least worst favorites. Is that the premise? Right, yeah. Uh, each one of us, we, we picked five of our, of our most and worst favorite. And I, I've got some just starting from the beginning. Um, one of my, because these aren't, these aren't in order uh, other than the order that we did the episode. I'm not playing favorites here. But my first one is episode 10, Dead of Night, which is a UK horror anthology series of which only three episodes survive because BBC doesn't like to waste money on tape stock. They, they hate archiving any of their content is what i'm saying probably what they did was that they made these episodes then they had to do another season of doctor who so to then also tape over. yeah so they put uh yeah, it, peter davison over tom baker over dead of night yeah it's that it's that same mindset where it's like you know you might share a flat and you know there's a bathroom at the end of the hall like the tape, they, they just had like one communal tape that the BBC was using. Like a communal toilet paper, if you will. Right, yeah. So that's the BBC's ethos of just share and share alike. We can't afford a tape for every show we make. Just use the take a tape, leave a tape jar and erase whatever's on there. That's just good old forged in war British thriftiness. Right, to erase your culture as it's being written. <laughs> but enough of the meta horror of Dead of Night and... Those three episodes or, or five episodes, it's just like, eh, maybe they might have changed the world. Maybe they could have been something that would have kicked uh, genre television into a whole other direction that we'd be celebrating thenceforth. This is a very Tim pick 
by the way. Right. Yeah, I haven't even gotten to the content of it yet. Yeah. I'm just mad that this show doesn't exist. That's that. That's exactly right. I don't know the details, but I know that the Library of Alexandria isn't... The story that has been told isn't precisely what happened. <sighs> I'm going to have to walk away. Yeah, you see, he's already... He's he's triggered. Yeah, because a lot of the, the content that we celebrate on this show is unheralded. And yeah, people put a lot of work into this. They put their best ideas into it, and some of them are revelatory. A lot of them are... Godfrey Ho movies, but uh, Dead of Night, the the one episode that you know really changed um, my idea of what horror is about was a woman sobbing, and as you recall from the episode, Anna Massey, who has a a very forlorn uh, British face. I'd be sad um, if I lived there too. Exactly, yeah, it's just a, a miserable island unto itself. They they quarantined it off. The rest of Europe is like just send them there. Sorry, Scotland, you got to deal with it. But yeah, Anna Massey, quintessential British face of her time, is a woman in an unhappy marriage. But the value of horror is that it doesn't just come out and say that. Otherwise, you got, you've got a drama. But it uses allegories and you know these unexpressed inner demons to manifest a paranormal version of events that you know, if you're able to read between the lines and understand metaphor and a bunch of other, uh, you know, literary bullshit, then you realize that horror actually does have you know, merit as a social commentary. And it gets to all these things that maybe we're afraid to talk about or presents them in such a garish, menacing, outrageous manner that that's the only way that we can really look at these things directly. Like, you need only look at the torture porn genre of the 2000s, you know, in the midst of, you know, the war on terror and Guantanamo Bay and things like that. Like people said on Twitter, the, uh, you know, anyone else have that quintessential uh, internet experience when you're 12 and, you know, you're playing, uh, uh, what, Neopets and posting on Facebook or posting on MySpace, seeing a man be get beheaded, you know, internet stuff. Those formative experiences we all love to remember. Or recount to a therapist many years later. Right, yeah. So that really changed my uh, notion of what horror can be. It's an allegorical retelling of maybe motives and feelings and fears that are otherwise um, unable to be expressed in polite society. And I think that the episode that best encapsulates that is the quiet suffering of Anna Massey in A Woman Sobbing. Because it's not the woman, it's not the ghost of a woman sobbing that she hears, it's her. Jen, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I think that's as good a summary of the relevance of horror as any that I've ever heard. I do think that these episodes are still hanging around on YouTube. I'm going to double check for you folks and see if I can link them in the show notes. I don't have much to add to Tim's summary, except that this is an example of another high watermark of the British teleplay uh, an extraordinarily strong genre in the 70s and 80s with writers like Nigel Neal, Dennis Potter, directors like Alan Clark, whose work we've discussed on the show, David Rudkin, just incredible explorations of the form that you would never have gotten in the States. And we poke a lot of fun at the United Kingdom on our show because it's fun to make fun of the British, but... <laughs> I mean, people talk about peak TV in the U.S., which I think for most people climaxed in the 2000s with stuff like The Sopranos. And I'm not maligning those shows at all, but 
I feel like the British kind of hit peak TV much earlier than we did. Right. Uh, well, it's because they have a tax-funded patron of the arts. Right. And as such, it's amazing what they were able to get away with on television with taxpayer money, with the license fees. Well, that's what I got to say about Dead and Night. Do you want to spend a half hour on this one, or do you want to get through the next uh, 11? <laughs> no, all, all I'll say to wrap up is that just looking at the the slug lines of these missing episodes, I'm getting super mad just imagining how good these could be. Because <laughs> <sighs> if the three surviving episodes are excellent, I believe that they are on YouTube. I'm going to check that for you guys, mm -hmm. like I said earlier. But anyway. Well, read the log lines of the remaining ones. Oh, well, okay. So um, we talked about the exorcism, and then there is a return flight, which also exists. Mm -hmm. And you can see that online. Yeah, return flight is basically I spent my youth fighting the Nazis, and now I work for Germans. <laughs> That's a good summary. Episode three was bedtime, and the description is, a young woman who feels trapped in her new marriage becomes so enamored with an antique brass bed she begins to spend all her time sleeping in it, slowly becoming imprisoned by it. Careful what you want, yeah, and don't give in to your base urges, perhaps. I'm feeling so called out right now. Um, episode four, bed, yeah. death cancels all debts. A world-famous writer wakes up at 4.20 a.m. every morning when his clock stops ticking and soon becomes convinced that someday he will die at this exact time. Man, imagine dying without getting a blaze up. Is that the partner from L.A. AIDS Jabber? At <laughs> 4.20. <laughs> yes. Check out our L.A. AIDS Jabber episode. <laughs> hey. Episode 5. Smith. When a journalist decides to do a story on a criminal named Smith, whose crimes horrified and appalled the England of his time, she discovers that the past is living on in the present. Well, there it is, isn't it? Shit. I really want to I want to see that, and they taped over it. Man. Yeah, it's, it's this sort of endemic structural malaise that you're like, oh, we keep doing the same things, and we keep having the same problems. What What is a Briton to do? This is worse than when my uncle would send us tapes of mystery science theater from mm -hmm. his state because we didn't get comedy central where we lived so yeah he, it was bad so he would record episodes for us but he didn't check the guide he didn't know the show was actually in a two-hour block so we had all these mm -hmm. like halves of mystery science theater <laughs> you got the mystery all right yeah. not so much the science or the theater i was so mad yeah i'm still mad to this day you brought it up. I assume you were. The final missing episode of Dead of Night is uh, called Two in the Morning. And the summary is, a depressed man is alarmed when his doppelganger appears and begins to take over his life. Two in the morning. Oh. Yes. Very punny. Yeah. They're thinking about this stuff. It's, uh, I'm, I'm just going to go lay down. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the... Um, Final episode of the series is uh, A Woman Sobbing, Tim's yeah. favorite. Eminently worth your time. If you only check out one episode of this show, that's this series, probably yeah. the one to to, to see because it, right. it is a pretty powerful piece of horror storytelling. Yeah, horror can be about stuff, as it turns out. Yeah, who knew? You hear that, yeah. Siskel and Ebert? <laughs> you hear that, Terrifier franchise? <laughs> <laughs> check out our episode. <laughs> yeah, well, I hear that uh, Terrifier 3 is going to be quite Lynchian. Uh, that seems like the reaction I would feel towards the writer-director, yes. <laughs> Too dark? <laughs> well, well it's, it's fucking Terrifier the Clown. He cut a woman in half. Am I, am I being inappropriate? Well, I just hope the the 
man responsible for terif- the Terrifier series isn't a person of color. That could be awkward. <laughs> but uh, what's next, Tim? We haven't seen a single person of color in any of the Terrifier movies. I don't think that's the case. That's true. Just saying, try harder. Yeah, he's not exactly uh, Jordan Peele. Right. Because, you know, like, I'm not the, the hugest fan of Jordan Peele, but at least he tries to make right, yeah. movies about stuff. If I can steal a great line from Destroy All Neighbors, the Jonah Ray Rodriguez and um, Alex Winter movie that came out recently, it is nominally about uh, the protagonist's obsession with progressive rock. And he has a great line in it, probably the highlight of the movie for me that I'm sorry I'm going to ruin now. He says that the great thing about Prague is that the musicians put every idea they have into every song they have. <laughs> and that is what Jordan Peele is doing. Yeah, that's probably a better description of Jordan Peele movies than progressive rock, to be honest. But Well, it was a joke, so sure. I, you, you can correct me on Blue Sky. Maybe I will, Tim. Maybe I will. You don't talk to me there. I'm the um, only person who talks to you on Blue Sky. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I know. Do you have a, a movie that you liked? Nope. Jen just says no. I hated everything. <laughs> no, Um. so we're talking about our faves. Yeah, your most yes, favorite. Yes, my... Not your worst favorite. My. <laughs> well, I'll give you a favorite of mine, and I, I went in order for whatever reason. I don't know why, just to be more organized. Good, now I can judge you. So... I'll start with an early one, which is William Friedkin's Cruising. I've heard good things about Cruising. (laughs) I hear it presents an accurate portrayal of the community, of conflicted homophobic cops. That's probably what made it such a hard load to swallow for the larger community. (laughs) I mean, I really felt like if he could have somehow made that message easier to digest maybe if he'd greased it up a little first (laughs) (laughs) leave your wristwatches at the door right yeah look look, we we both have several gay friends and only some of them are obsessive perverts i really love cruising i am a fan of friedkin but cruising is a particular favorite of mine probably because it was vigorously protested before it even came out protesters disrupted the shooting, uh, basically by making noise, spoiling takes, things like that. And the concern was that it was a very negative portrayal of the gay community. I think that gets it a lot of what is wrong with identity politics is Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very prissy way of looking at the world where every single member of a minority group has to be an idealized representative of that minority group. Or else it's it's quote unquote bad, right? And I'm sure that someone who has lived that experience can you know speak uh, more eloquently on the, on the subject of you know trying to be like an idealized gay, you know, trying to be like one of the good ones. Sure, and you see that to this day with uh, the annual debate over Pride, where people confuse it with the Folsom Street Fair, and it's like <laughs> right. the Folsom Street Fair is walled off. You have to pay to enter. It is not open to mm-hmm. minors. Right. It is kind of a big private sexual block party. And then there's Pride, which is a public event for everyone. And, you mm-hmm. know, you might see a guy dancing on a float in boxer briefs. 
It's right. not the biggest deal. And there is there is a debate about the corporatization of pride. That's like a whole other conversation. Yeah, but, it's completely missing the the forest for the lumber that can be harvested from it. <laughs> right. And but as an as a public expression of pride for the homosexual community, the for mm-hmm. a community that has been oppressed for a long time in spite of the fact that it's they've always existed in some form or another. People are people mm-hmm. will always be queer. There will always be queer people. I agree yes, with exactly. Corvidal on that. And as much as people try to shove them back in the closet, they want to say, no, fuck you. I exist. I'm me. Mm -hmm. I deserve to live with dignity. Now, cruising was rather unfairly maligned as a misrepresentation of the gay community in spite of the fact that it presents a mere subset of the gay community. Men who go into dank basements and fist fuck each other. And um, it's it's a Venn diagram with uh, cops, I should say. <laughs> but, you know, guys who like high leather boots, uh, be, um, fascist or trappings. Even, yeah, or even just an expression of the spectrum of sexuality. Yes. Like, you're talking about Venn diagrams. Like, we aren't saying that it's only gay men who are interested in this lifestyle. It overlaps with, you know, straight people as well. It over it overlaps with repressed uh, straight, allegedly, cops who are then thrust <coughs> into this, this, this dank recess of society <laughs> and find that it's difficult to fit in at first, but afterwards you kind of quite become accustomed to it. Yes, the, it's a it's a wonderful depiction of these hot, moist, cavernous subcultures, or yeah. one in particular. The the thing that I th- think I, I kind of uh, punted on when we uh, first covered this uh, on our show is that, well, Jen, like you say, you know, the gay community can be outraged about it uh, be- because it is, in, in their opinion, a step back in terms of identity politics. And the problem, the reason that identity politics exists is that people are, are dumb clods who really can only judge a book by its cover. And, you know, they see one representation of, uh, you know, the gay community in movies and are like, well, I guess they're all like that because I never, you know, I'm an incurious bastard who can't be bothered to talk to a gay person or maybe even my neighbor who also happens to be gay and completely normal, but I never noticed. It's only this like outrageous caricature that gets any attention because people just being, I don't know, isolated and incurious. If you knew any gay people, you'd be like, oh, they're just like everyone else. That's exactly right. But yeah, the, the thing that I kind of punted on in our in our original coverage of this is that I want to say, first and foremost, it, it's not a movie about you know, maligning the gays. It is a horror movie about a seedy subculture that it happens to be about a facet of the gay community is part of it, but first and foremost, it's it's there to excite and frighten and entertain, which it does because we're still talking about it now. It's hey, Hell, it's one of Jen's favorite movies. <laughs> the other interesting thing about the film to me is that it's a picture of a pre-AIDS society of a subculture that would be decimated by that same virus. So in that way, it's a little bit, I think as you put it, Tim, it's it's oddly prescient, yeah, in a way it didn't realize, which I think gave it that much more impact. Right, because it was sort of drawn from, I won't say the headlines, because it's the kind of thing that the mainstream press didn't bother to cover. But there was at least one serial killer 
stalking gay men in New York in the 70s. Yeah, he was the uh, lab technician in The Exorcist. <laughs> well, that's a oh. that's a whole other thing. Um, that guy whose name I can't... Speaking of Friedkin. That guy whose name I can't recall, he is responsible for at least one death. I think that other murders that happened around the same time were pinned on him simply for expediency because, mm-hmm. let's be honest, the cops don't really care. It's like, yeah, another dead F-slur. So yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That that was um, actress slash murderer Paul Bateson. Thank you. Wow, damn. You're producing. You're coming up with the the facts. <laughs> He's two thirds of a triple threat. Yeah. Normally those threats are singer songwriter, uh, actor musician, <laughs> but you know, Paul mixed it up. He got an egot in killing. No, actually, um, he did. <laughs> I believe he stabbed to death a movie critic from The Village Voice. He indisputably did that. Mm -hmm. The notion that he murdered other people is less provable. In fact, there's really no evidence that he actually did kill more than one person, which begs the question, wait a minute, so who was targeting gay and trans people in New York in the 70s? We gotta. We should sick Reddit on just background players from any other Friedkin movies. What? So they can finger the wrong guy, like they did with the Boston Marathon. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, you set that up, and then I just like biffed it. <laughs> uh, I'll pretend it's funnier this way, even though it isn't. Like we were saying, cruising a strangely prescient film, almost poignant in its own way. Mm-hmm. Also, just delightfully scuzzy in the way that Friedkin does it. I don't know how it, he do it. It's titillating to its leering audience, yes. It's, it's fucking great, and I love that. I love just the embracing of an incredibly grotty subculture because these are parts of the human experience that are ignored or erased a lot of the time because people get uncomfortable looking at them. And... Surprisingly, for a filmmaker who generally had, I don't want to say an uncritical view of cops, but he palled around with cops, like literally Mm -hmm. in the case of making The French Connection. Um, Mm -hmm. And later when he made the movie Rampage about a serial killer, that was in release. Palled around with serial killers? Wow. (laughs) That was in release limbo for five years when it finally did arrive on the scene free can recut it to make it more pro death penalty okay which is wild but he still isn't afraid to present a picture that could be construed as critical of law enforcement and that is certainly true of cruising where the police are shown to be basically inept hostile predatory sadistic yeah assholes homophobes yeah um, and also in the movie, it does present a lot of signifiers of that culture. And, you know, one of your, your favorites, Jen, Rob Halford, like he's, he's kind of playing a, a character, but then life imitates art and, you know, he sets a trend and that, that kind of becomes the thing. So it's this feedback loop of, you know, Friedkin doing his research about this particular subculture and, you know, presenting the totemistic iconic elements from it. And then people who are maybe adjacent to it are like, hanky code, huh? <laughs> Or you know, any of the other aesthetic that goes with it. It's, it's it's interesting how culture in the mainstream takes a lot of the like highlights of these things and amplifies them. Yeah. 
And in Rob Halford's case, it was a way of him expressing his queerness like on a mainstream stage, literally. Mm. And people were just like, oh, yeah, like, you know, leather and studs. That's so metal. And he's like, yeah, right. it's metal. Metal. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, though, Jen, um, if you got a chance to see Rob Halford, what would you do? I'd jump his bones. Yeah, what I'm saying is that I would sexually assault a gay man. That's great. <laughs> no way he's gay. He's so masculine. <laughs> he's so masculine, he only has sex with other men. By the way, Heavy Metal Parking Lot, still on Tubi, if you want to see the world's first cringe compilation. Well, it's like, you know, getting chicken pox. Like, once you watch uh, Heavy Metal Parking Lot, you're sort of anesthetized against, <laughs> against cringe. Yeah. You're like, I've seen, that is the most cringe that I can ever experience. Anything after that. I could uh, record or listen to a podcast after this. I mean, to be fair, I have openly attended Rush concerts, so I'm pretty hard to embarrass at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's um, not Traveler, but in the Alien RPG, there are ways of reducing your stress dice by giving stress to all the people around you. So that's kind <laughs> of like Jen with Cringe. Uh, I will give you uh, a, a tight two minutes on Angel Heart. Ooh. That, that was episode 20. Uh, that's got Bobby De Niro, uh, young and beautiful Mickey Rourke. And a young and beautiful Lisa Bonet. Right, yeah. Right off the Cosby show. I know Bill Cosby had a problem with that, but he doesn't really have a leg to stand on anymore. <laughs> that is so funny. Like, cause, because, and for those who don't know, who maybe haven't seen Angel Heart, and you should fix that right now because it's one of Alan Parker's mm -hmm. best. Yeah, it almost feels like we shouldn't even cover it as like an unheralded classic. Because it seems like, of course, this movie is great. Like, you don't need us to tell you that. Well, on an $18 million budget, it earned $17 million at the box office domestically. So, while it has grown in reputation since then, I think that critical reaction was mixed. People weren't picking up what it was laying down. Uh, because, mm -hmm. and because, and I think it has a lot to do with the horror imagery of the film, which is fucking great but critics of the time are kind of like Ugh, what is this and there is that sex scene with uh mickey burke and lisa bonet that bill mm -hmm. cosby famously objected to which right. i guess pissed him off so much he had to go rape two women that night but um <laughs> yeah i'll show you how you're supposed to have sex you should be lying still because you're unconscious <laughs> and your hair should be wet right um, yeah, Her if only these people had watched. Wet. <laughs> if only these critics had seen Dead of Night and had their entire premise, uh, their outlook on horror forever altered. I don't think American TV critics could have handled Dead of Night. No. <laughs> um, Straight up, could not have handled it. Right, and it fits with what you're saying about cruising. It is a very, uh, as Jen would say, grotty movie. Like we're in. Uh, we're we're dealing with like voodoo and like we're in the deep south and there's this a lot of cultural texture around so it yeah it is it starts like the story starts off um, I forget which city it's in but I mean we're basically looking into like a you know a, a tenement room of where a you know blood sacrifice is being conducted and like the backstory of you know what what sets this event off. So it, we have, we're in a lot of like dark corners and alleys 
we're in a not entirely pleasant part of society. That that kind of fits with what you're saying about this sort of underground culture that's being brought to light in, in Angel Heart. But that's not what I like about it, though I do like that. What I like about Angel Heart is the same thing that I like about Jacob's Ladder. It's the same thing that I like about another a number of other movies that I can just spoil the fucking ending for. <laughs> it's the same thing that I like about The Sixth Sense, that I like about Ninth Gate, about Kill List, about The Lighthouse, about Agatha Christie's Endless Night, is because these are all stories where you learn too late what you really are. Damn. And That's really good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I think about it a lot. And <laughs> Why yeah, is I just that, think Tim? that it's a, I perhaps when all is said and done i will understand when you're on the elevator to hell <laughs> right yeah so yeah because angel heart for those of you who aren't familiar first off shame on you um yeah it is mickey Rourke looking into a missing person this musician johnny favorite who some say made a deal with the devil for his fame but then he weaseled out of his contract and he became someone else I'm not going to say who that someone else is, but you'll find out by the end of the movie. Bob De Niro does a great, um, like, I wouldn't say that he's an arch Satan, but I mean, to look at him, you're like, oh, this guy's the literal devil. But he plays it so cool. I'm all the cool for hell. It's still pretty hot. So it, it's a it's a low key arch devil, I guess, <laughs> because yeah, there's no mis- no mistaking that Lewis Cipher. Hang on, let me write that down. <laughs> Wait a minute. Uh, you know, sort of a uh, a dime store novel uh, alias, but that's that's the tone of the movie where it's it's all right in front of you, had you eyes to see. All right, we're 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 going, Jen. What's your what's your next most least not favorite? Thirty seconds, Tony Blankley. Um, <laughs> let's see. Well, um, I stuck with the queer themes because mm-hmm. my next most bestest biggest favorite because you're biased that we've yes. ever talked about in the first hundred episodes mm. of the show is a little movie called romeo and romeo oh yeah i don't even um <laughs> and this one i know 97 percent of you will not have mm. heard of this which is a goddamn shame yeah it is it is an important entry in the canon of trailer park films <laughs> sorry is that one is that not where you were going with it no that's a that's actually a good way of putting it i would say that this movie has the potential to be a the room or a birdemic it is mm-hmm. that particular brand of special it's on youtube right now I checked. It's still up. Mm -hmm. For the love of God, if you like bad movies, and I know you do because you're listening to this fucking show, you have to see this. Yeah, be that as it may, I mean, what what is it about that, that is so compelling? I think that is the audacity of vanity on display. The utter disconnect between how the auteur sees himself versus the image uh as presented by by people with eyes Jaden taylor the auteur Mm -hmm. is creative goals 
honestly. He is a triple threat. He is a actor, director, musician, murder. No, wait. That was the other guy. I mean, he wanted to make a feature. He wanted to Mm -hmm. make a drama about a washed up pop star isolating himself Mm -hmm. in his trailer park home only to be drawn back into the high drama of the music world. Mm -hmm. He went ahead and he did it. In spite of not having the strongest grasp of basic filmmaking Mm -hmm. techniques, he fucking did it. Such that a lot of the techniques deployed in this movie border on the avant-garde. The editing alone will fuck your ass up. It's incredible. It is him reviewing the footage and being like, yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. The use of (laughs) non-diegetic sound. Mm -hmm. The use of his own music. He's a powerful vocalist. <laughs> yeah, non-diegetic doesn't begin to describe it. Uh, the frank depiction of gay sex. I mean, how many <laughs> movies have you seen where you get to lay your eyes upon the director's semi-hard penis? Very few. Friedkin versus Romeo and Romeo. Friedkin blinked. That's that's the difference. I'm honestly surprised that, uh, because famously, uh, one of the things that Friedkin bragged about shooting uh, Cruising was that he was like, yeah, I shot like golden showers. You know, they wouldn't let me put it in, but I shot that stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of surprised that Jaden Taylor didn't put pissing in his movie. <laughs> I'm surprised that we didn't see someone ejaculate at some point, although maybe I just forgot. I do think... As we said in the our episode about it, mm-hmm. episode 42, go check it out. It's one of the free ones. You have no excuse. You have only your time to lose. I do think that you see unsimulated gay sex in it. Yeah, that's pretty convincing. Yeah. Because when we watch it, we're like, I think that guy's actually getting yeah. fucked. <laughs> fucked in dub butt. Right, yeah. It is maybe one of my favorite movies on the planet at this point. I love it. I want to watch it again right now because it is so delightful. Please, please go to YouTube and check it out because we want people to know about this movie. It's amazing. It it is a singular vision in the same way that, you know, we we talk about Terrifier wanting to be Lynchian. You know, like (laughs) Lynchian is a particular style and there is a Jadon Taylor style. That really, I mean, a lot of the time you'll see just absolute direct-to-video dreck of, like, that one amazing movie. They're just like, these people have no fucking clue what they're doing. Yeah. But Jadon Taylor, that doesn't stop him. Like, that, this star must shine. Well, Amari Stevenson didn't let a total lack of the understanding of the language of film stop him either. Or the language but, of English. But it's of a piece with things like Romeo Romeo, but quite different Romeo and Romeo has a vitality that that one amazing movie lacks. I think that one amazing movie is more for advanced viewers of bad cinema. Like, you really have to be on the hard shit, like, things before you watch Mm -hmm. something like that one amazing movie. Yeah, just have utter disregard for cinema as a medium. And your own brain and psychological health. This episode is running a little long. I don't know if we'll get to our our worst favorites. Um, We may have to split that to another episode. But, I mean, I've been talking so much, I feel like I'm getting getting thirsty. 
Well, Tim, I'm glad you mentioned that because proper functional hydration is essential. And I have a solution for you. Liquid IV is the number one powered hydration brand in America. And their hydration multiplier is the one product you're missing in your daily routine. Go ahead, ask me about Liquid IV. All right. If I wanted to power through talking about a dozen movies with a casual acquaintance that I maybe liked or didn't like as much as they did, what should I just drink basic ass tap water or is there a better solution? I mean, you could do that. You could just hit the Brita in your refrigerator for the 75th time if you wanted to be boring. Brita, I'm a podcaster. You think I have afford a Brita filter money? I'm drinking from the hose like Gen X. <laughs> well, when you're getting rat lungworm, you can flavor it with liquid IV. Uh-huh. Well, that sounds better. <laughs> liquid IV comes in 12 delicious, refreshing flavors to keep your hydration routine exciting. With just one stick, you can hydrate two times faster than with water alone. Good. That way I can drink like half as much water. That's exactly right. <laughs> I guess. I'm not, cool. you know, I'm not good at math. Let me just, uh, I'll work some notes out on this. Uh, let me, where's, where's my scratch pad? <laughs> Let's see. Um, well, I'm, I'm typing, I'm writing down some pros and cons. And under flavor, I've, for water, I've got water flavor. Can liquid IV beat that? Oh, brother, you got sea berry, you got strawberry lemonade, you got Concord grape, you got lemon lime, pina colada, tropical punch, watermelon, strawberry, passion fruit, guava, acai berry, acai, mm-hmm. etc. Well, uh, let's, let's, uh, let me tally up the uh, totals here. Yeah, that's um, that's at least one more than not no flavor at all. Yeah, so why keep drinking boring ass water? A thing that I really love about Liquid IV is the convenient packaging that makes it so much easier to hydrate. You just pop one package worth of that in your glass of water and there you go. It's magic. You got flavoring. Yeah, I tried that with liquid flavoring before, but I mean, it would kept slipping out of my hand. I would get flavoring everywhere, but no, This is much more convenient. You can take it on a flight. You can put in your pocket. You can sneak it into the club. Probably. I never go out and do anything. (laughs) But what more convenient way could you ask to flavor water? I can't think of a better way. Than with liquid IV. Yeah, that's right. And we should let our audience know um, you're going to want to put this in a glass or some kind of vessel, uh, just for safety reasons. You're gonna wanna contain your fluid, and then you're gonna Mm. wanna apply the packet of liquid IV to the water in the vessel. It's very simple, so don't get scared. That's just just good advice. Yeah, exactly. And then what will happen is, you put that baby in 16 ounces of water, you're gonna be hydrated two times faster and more efficiently than water alone. It's got five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, and vitamin C, and it's got three times the electrolytes of leading sports drinks. All the B vitamins that anyone cares about. Yes, the four Bs and the big C. Mm-hmm. Not not the cancer vitamin. No. Oh, uh, no. Uh, uh, liquid IV does not give you cancer. That I know yeah. of. Which... <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing that no one is listening to these. <laughs> It's just that simple, folks. Real people, real flavor, real hydrating. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code H-Y-S-T-P-O-D. That's HISTPOD at checkout. You get 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today. That's with promo code H-Y-S-T-P-O-D 
at liquidiv.com. All right. Uh, should I do that right now or should we finish this episode? Uh, you know, you look a little thirsty, like your eyes are all sunken in. Oh, wait, you look like that all the time. And it doesn't have any GMO or gluten in it. Yeah, it's made with quality ingredients, not that GMO shit. There's no GMO corn in it. Like, Monsanto has nothing to do with this additive, so you can feel safe putting it in your fucking drinking water. You aren't going to turn into a Cronenberg monster like Rick and Morty. That we know of. Right. That no one has ever heard of this happening. Liquidiv.com. Except for on this show. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know some podcast mentioned it just doing my own research <laughs> uh where were we oh, okay now that I've drunk from this bucket with delicious sea berry flavored liquid IV mm. I feel fortified and ready to continue with the rest of the episode where were we Tim I was talking about Angel Heart you were carrying on about Romeo and Romeo great movie it's a feel-good movie you know it's not a feel-good movie you know it is the most feel-bad movie that we have ever reviewed on this show that is episode 71 threads and in fact uh, not to steal your thunder Tim but I did choose threads as my honorary favorite honorary oh, okay well wow. I mean I had such a strong list of contenders well it's because we'd cover so many great that's exactly right and also some dog shit but threads Mm. is not dog shit threads is actually a must watch that's what i tell people all the time and it will ruin your week or month Mm -hmm. it's brutal and this was your all this was your alternate for top five yeah because it is so brutal i had to pick it for honorable mention but right it sounds like it's one of your best most favorites yes i think we're seeing a theme here dead of night angel heart threads this is another meditation on horror because it's horror but not like you think that it is that mundane is what makes it so much worse it is about the fall of civilization after a nuclear apocalypse so you know but in keeping with i think the the british zeitgeist it isn't about the major superpowers it isn't about the titans in this conflict it is the grass affected when the elephants fight so to speak it is about the fact that you know, nuclear weapons are designed to kill millions of people at a time each one of those is a person with their own life and they are like the rest of us caught up in a conflict that is beyond our ability to have any measurable effect on and if that doesn't horrify you i don't know what will that's true and also keep in mind it's not post-apocalyptic like some italian ass movie where people are driving muscle cars Ugh, right around yeah. like a ersatz mad max this is real horror and the fact that it's fictional horror doesn't take any of the the sting out of it it's it's it, like uh hard sci-fi yeah it, it came out of a very fevered time in i'd say the british psyche but in 1984 everyone was afraid that somebody was going to push the big button and Mm -hmm. we'd experience nuclear destruction and nuclear winter this was a thing that was being debated on television um i believe that there was a panel discussion after the broadcast of the movie the day after where you had much missed figures like Carl Sagan debating absolute fucking ghouls like Henry Kissinger and William F. Buckley on mm-hmm. what would happen if there actually was a nuclear exchange between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, for example. So 
yeah. this was something so short-sightedness by saying like I want to be able to push the button you figure out what happens after right so you can see why people were concerned and mm-hmm. threads might be the greatest distillation of those fears because there are certainly other nuclear apocalypse films that are very much worth your time a couple of which we covered on the show uh day after which i mentioned uh favorite of mm-hmm. tim's special bulletin special bulletin yeah um Check out our episode on The Day After and Special Bulletin. Uh, Testament mm-hmm. is another one. All of these works grappled with the fear of a nuclear apocalypse. But Threads is the one that just destroys you. Yeah, because it is that brass tacks portrayal of how everyday people are affected by this event that is so terrible that it becomes an abstraction. You know, when you're talking in mega deaths, you're like, no, the, those those aren't Megadeths. That's my neighborhood. Like these are the people that I know and, and work with. Yeah, and the the verite approach, and mm-hmm. the smart decision to include very banal details like, oh, well, what will our local council do if the neighborhood got yeah. nuked? That's what makes it so much more terrifying. Yeah, it is little people in their small roles doing as best they can, which, again, I think sums up a lot of the UK mindset. Yeah, and then the way that it draws things out to absolute worst-case scenario, (laughs) where, yes, there's like a breakdown of society immediately after the bombs fall, but then what happens to humanity, you know, several years on from the nuclear apocalypse? Yeah, because it isn't just saying like here's 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 what happens one second after the bomb falls. Here's what happens a week after the bomb falls. It's saying like here's what's ha- what happens twenty years after. You know, to say that you know these these issues, these problems that you know the powers that be are sort of passing the buck on. Like they aren't going to affect this generation. They're going to affect every generation that comes after it. Yes. What we're looking at in threads isn't you know isn't just the just the the bomb going off it isn't just you know a uh, a mushroom cloud what we're what we're seeing is people left to fend for themselves in a national disaster tell me how covid went for you but you know what we're seeing really like writ large is the end of civilization it's um i i had found an interesting word online uh it is the uh the meso apocalypse oh it's not it's not before and it's not after, but it's during. It is when, you know, buildings are still standing and you know, you might have access to power and water. You can still go down to the shop, but there's no more help coming after this. Like the hospital's still there, but like once they run out of whatever they have, like they're done. We you know, we have agreed upon the notion of you know, rule rule of law, but when there's no one to enforce that, now what? You know, how how does society, you know, change and mutate and how do people survive in that? And then you, you are faced with like uh, in a pragmatic sense, you know, how do how do the survivors live and you know, how do they persist beyond that and what is left of you know, civilization basically after after this event. The horrifying thing, too, is what I was saying earlier is that, you know, it's about these individuals caught up in a conflict they had nothing to do with. It doesn't even happen in, like, you know, it's not like London or New York or anywhere. It's it's Sheffield. I mean, you know, I'm an American. I'm not—world politics are not my uh, forte. 
but I'm not going to be able to find Sheffield on a map. I can find London and Manchester. But yeah, that just kind of underscores the central tragedy of the movie is that the apocalypse, the bombs fall on the just and unjust alike. Yeah. And from there, it leads up to one of the most horrifying endings in cinema, in my opinion. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's it's this whole thing where it's like, all the people involved had nothing to do with this. There's, um, you know, famously, uh, you know, a notable actor in, in one of the leads where bombs drop and he's like, I got to get home to my family. And you just never see him again. <laughs> just, yeah, they're... It's, you know, kind of like what we've seen in The Sorcerer, Freaking Sorcerer, where it's like, you think that these are little people, but no, like, no one's just anybody. They all have these interconnections, and it's all wiped away, which grappling with the enormity of that is really the the thing that sticks with you at, even after Threads is finished running. Oh. And, the, and the ending, too. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. Yeah, I'm just sorry. I'm gently lowering myself into this well of despair in the bucket right hand over hand slowly you want to cheer yourself up by watching pink floyd's the wall (laughs) at least i mean that's a journey of self-discovery he brings people together yeah and and, you know with the somewhat ambiguous ending of the wall there's at least the possibility of redemption and learning right yeah but this one, I mean, you know, you have not so much uh, a handful of of surviving irradiated Britons, barely literate. Speaking of Manchester, <laughs> <laughs> yes, Britain has been destroyed, but uh, football hooliganism continues apace. <laughs> uh, bless them. See, culture survives. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, uh well, yeah, like uh, you know, uh. Gonna, it's just gonna. Uh, you, you need to take five, and we can do your your next movie. <laughs> well, we're uh, we're sticking with the British theme for my next one, mm-hmm. and yes, it is also horror, but it's a fun one if you're a mm-hmm. horror person, and uh, one that I think Tim also enjoyed quite a bit. Not be not mm-hmm. just because of the presence of Craig Charles Lister of uh, TV's Red Dwarf. <laughs> But I'm talking about Ghost Watch, the notorious television production screened by the BBC once and then never shown again, at least not for, I don't know, 25, 30 years after that. Yeah, until its legacy was secured, like a lot of movies right. that we're covering. So it's perfect for our show. And yes, it was too scary for a lot of the British public, but it's very clever. It does resemble... Uh, television broadcast that I mentioned earlier when we were talking about threads, a uh, special bulletin in that it's, it's verite. Yeah. It's, it's a real time broadcast or it appears to be a real time broadcast. Right. And not just the, uh, the show itself, but really what cemented its place in history was the audience's reaction because it aired and people lost their fucking minds over this, lost their shit. Yeah. Which, again, it's like, well, you asked us to make a scary TV show, and we did. The fuck is wrong with you? Are you not entertained? Right, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, we scared the ever-loving bejesus out of you. Like, you're welcome. Thanks for calling and complaining. (laughs) We made TV that was too good, and everyone got mad, so we couldn't show it ever again. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah, my bad. Um... (laughs) Sorry, I didn't realize you wanted a horror pantomime. Yeah, but uh, like a lot of 
a lot of horror productions, uh, something mm-hmm. which outraged people at the time only grew in reputation as the years went on. It's considered kind of a watershed television broadcast in British film history. Right. It has since appeared yeah. on DVD and people are like, oh, wait, actually, this is good. Yeah, it would be like if if you were a kid and you were tuning into like American Idol or like you, you remember that episode where Katy Perry died? You, you remember that <laughs> when she was she was killed on camera? Um, I think like Simon Cowell was possessed and he killed someone in the audience. Do you remember you remember that episode? I, I remember specifically there was an episode of Carson Daly <laughs> where I I think Ellen DeGeneres was electrocuted. You're like if you tune in as a kid, you're like, no, you should not put this on TV. But it's like, what? Like this is the medium that we're speaking in. I'm gonna have the Jagoff star of uh, of Red Dwarf. Come on, just be an absolute shithead. And then we're going to watch some beloved presenter disappear into like a portal to the ghost world. And just like, yeah, yeah, shit happens. Sorry. Yeah, it's great because... <laughs> this, uh, this is a rocky production. Yeah, it's great because uh, obviously American audiences won't be as familiar with these presenters. But if you understand the context, it's like, oh, this is... It's exactly like... Tim described it. It's 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 horrifying. Right. And the fact yeah, that the presenters just... are so game and yeah. are very good at their jobs and also it turns out pretty good at, at acting this stuff out. It's really convincing. Yeah. Yeah, it's like if we're going to do a Halloween episode of New Year's Rock and Eve and Ryan Seacrest <laughs> is going to turn into a demon before your very eyes. Yeah, yeah. Ryan Seacrest will turn to you, the viewer, and say, I'm sorry, but he's right behind you. <laughs> <laughs> I can see through your teeth. I can see you now. Which, yeah, that's kind of what the... It, it goes further than that. That's kind of what Ghostwatch does, because they build up this this boogeyman, Pipes, who's he's like, he's always there, but you never see him. It's only if you're... You know, uh, you're a real uh, uh, nerves of steel horror aficionado, and you go back and you rewind frame by frame, and you're like, "Oh shit, there's that guy that like I totally didn't notice when they aired it," which is a great bit of sleight of hand because they say he's there, but you don't see him. So it's like anytime you don't see him, he might be there. I know, like logically, it's backwards, but you're not thinking logically when you're like there's a demon who's gonna kill you through your tv yeah we're talking about the supernatural and the fact that anything goes is like so much more terrifying right yeah it's like the more that you continue to watch and pay attention to the show the more powerful and dangerous this thing is gonna get and someone's gonna die at the uh bbc studios it's chilling it's amazing it's a really nicely written bit of television yeah also when i was watching it the power went out the other day and i'm like god damn it Uh oh this is a great show pipes got into your apartment yep (laughs) that's jokes on him no one visits me (laughs) yeah and this one was written by a guy called steven volk who Mm -hmm. also i think tried to write the script for william friedkin's the guardian which we've also talked about on the show but don't hold that against him he does great work on Ghostwash. Old responsible. Yeah, I yeah. think Friedkin kind of tied his hands on that one because I believe uh, Volk ended up having a nervous breakdown when he was working on The Guardian. Right. Well, he kept changing his mind while they were shooting. It's it's 
Michael Mann with the keep all over right. again. And so that's why you shouldn't bother watching The Guardian. Just listen to our episode about it with show favorite yeah. Peter Carella. Right. And, you know, pro tip, lock down your script before you start shooting. If it's not too much to ask. I know. Seems obvious in hindsight. Yeah. And you believe me, you cannot just improv on the day of. Don't even try. <laughs> Well, this is my next movie. It doesn't involve the audience, uh, although it does engage them with some uh, radiant performances. It looks them in the eye and doesn't let go until their brain has been fried. Then that is episode 90, Horror Express. Woo! Hey, guess what? Yeah? That is also next on my list of favorites. <laughs> cool. Hey, we can save some time. We got a twofer, folks. We both loved Horror Express. And uh, if you like Hammer Horror... This is not a Hammer film, mm-hmm. but it's near as damn it, and it's really good. It's actually Classic a, in the genre. Yeah, it, I believe it was made in Spain. It's got mm-hmm. Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Yeah, together again, got the got the team back. Yes, and Telly Savalas derailing the train, literally. Yes, just coming and swinging his big bald dick <laughs> and just like owning every scene that he's in. He's fantastic in this. Just big swinging dick of a Cossack who just don't give a fuck. He's going to find shit out and he's going to take names. Exactly. Yeah. It's his movie. Peter and Cushing and Christopher Lee just happen to be in it. Yeah. And they're smart enough to kind of step aside a little bit when he gets on the train. They're like, oh, like, just let him cook. Yeah. Let the master work. Because as I mentioned in the episode, I'm old, but I'm not that old, uh, old enough to appreciate just what a big deal Telly Savalas was because I just know him as not Kolchak, <laughs> Kochak. <laughs> Who loves you, Tim? Right, yeah. Players Club ads. Oh, yeah, um, I remember those. I am also right. not that old, but old. Yeah, you're pretty old. But yeah, this movie is, uh, I found it on Tubi uh, where, you know, the dumping ground for who knows. You know, you never know what you're going to get. You might uh, encounter something that you're just like, I can see why this movie that had, you know, four named celebrities in the credits and was done by a uh, notable director just absolutely sank without a trace. You know, be like, it's I can see why this is on Tubi. No one would pay to see this. But other times, you find a, a Spanish horror film in the mold of Hammer Horror. Yeah, you're all the better for taking the chance on it. It is... Uh, you know, if you like playing Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game, if you like, you know, Lovecraft is in that same vein. It is a one-shot of horror on the Orient Express, which I think I said in our other episode. Yeah, it's a possessing alien from the prehistoric era has come back and is absorbing people's minds and memories and killing them in a very evocative death sequence. That's actually a little intense. We're just like this. This person isn't just being killed; they're hurting every moment while while this thing sucks out their brains. It's fucking scary, which is something that you want from a horror film, especially a horror film right, with yeah. horror right in the title. Right? Yeah. Maybe not as scary as a TV show like Ghost Watch, but it's 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 more of a fun kind of scary. <laughs> like Tim said, Murder on the Orient Express, but with supernatural mm-hmm. elements. Telly Savalas just absolutely wrecking it. Yeah, he's so great. And I don't want to correct you, Tim, but didn't you discover this on one of the non-B-movie TV Roku channels? Uh, yeah, it was Tubi. No, no, no. Um, or, one or of the, no. like, uh, independent-run 
channels like oh. uh, not B Zone, but whatever that one that was really great and went away because the guy didn't have time to run it anymore. Jeez. Like, I'm not trying to put you on the spot because, like, I don't remember the name of the channel. But the reason for that is that I believe the rights to this film are somewhat up mm-hmm. in the air such that people are like, oh, it's in the public domain, which might not be true, but it mm-hmm. gets treated like it's in the public domain. So you'll see this on a lot of streaming services. They think they can get away with showing it without getting in trouble and to tell you the truth, they have all this time, so... You know, but I think, yeah, and now I'm contradicting myself. I believe it is on Tubi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are a couple of versions on Tubi. Um, I think one is just a, a better transfer. But yeah, I can't think of what that other um, B movie also ran was. I'm I'm pretty sure I have the channel installed. And just you know, it, it just says loading. It was something like uh, it, w- it. They showed a lot of horror, like horror and exploitation, and. The guy ran it, I think, like he had a kid or something, and so he couldn't devote more time to it, and so it went away. And we're like, oh, that's a shame that that channel went away. And Tim was like, well, I'll just have to watch B-Movie TV 18 hours a day instead of 15. Yeah, I won't switch back and forth between them. I mean, I, I tried switching over to B-Zone, but their schedule is so fucked. Is like, it? I can't, yeah. Because I, I was like, oh, well... B-Movie TV is in for it now um, because how hard can it be to run a streaming channel of public domain movies? As it turns out, more difficult than you think. Yeah, at this stage in my life and having done close to 200 episodes of this podcast, Mm -hmm. I'm very careful about what I call out with the phrase, how hard could it be? Right, yeah, podcasting is no joke. (laughs) It's running the show has been like the Baton Death March, folks. Mm Mm-hmm. Only better film insight. And uh, I haven't gotten in shape. Quite the opposite. Yeah. Tit for tat, I guess. Yeah, now I feel like um, watching Bridge in the River Kwai. It's a trade-off. Yeah, but that happens to me yeah. a lot. So yeah, Horror Express. <laughs> right, yeah. It's um, floating around out there. It's really easy to see. We do recommend yeah, it you, if you like. You probably have the rights hell, to it. Hell, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, kn- they probably were transferred to you at the end of 2023. So, you, you know, check that out and uh, screen it if you can, because it's a fun one. Yeah, yeah plot-wise, it's a tight story. I love the characters in it. We have a doctor, an adventurer, a detective, a spy, a countess, a scientist, an engineer, and a cultist, and then, you know, a military officer. This is like a, a, like how to host a murder party. But, you know, with an alien. Yeah, and it it's also important for us to mention that the women are dimes in this. Yeah, a couple of smoke shows in yes. this. And, you know, one of them's good and one of them isn't, but you'll never know which is which. Hey, pick and choose, man. Right, yeah. Also, <laughs> one of my favorite lines. It isn't just Dead of Night that's really informed uh, my outlook from, you know, just a writer banging something out on a deadline but there's the monk character in horror express that i guess i left out of all the awesome characters in this he becomes kind of the renfield to this uh possessing alien and telly savalas is like well we're he's possessed by the alien or he's working for him we're, we're gonna have to kill him and the countess is like oh no he's you know he's my favorite monk he's so innocent and he's like yeah we have lots of innocent monks <laughs> it's like I'll, I'll get you a new monk when we get home i mean they were probably thick on the ground in Russia at the time. Because people saw how successful Rasputin was at what he was doing, and they're like, damn. He was Mm -hmm. like an Instagram influencer. They were like, what a racket. I'm going to meet some kind of minor noblewoman 
and charm her mm -hmm. with my big dick Russian peasant energy. Right, yeah. Now you got to, like, buy out someone's electric car company or something. <laughs> blow up a bunch of rockets. <laughs> uh, so that's Horror Express. Jen, what is your favorite British horror movie? <laughs> I'm just guessing. Did we do one about... Uh, homosexuality in the uk well i swerved but this one is still about freaky sex made okay. by a canadian this was episode mm -hmm. 96 david cronenberg's crash oh yes uh, all right yeah canadians that's that's pretty out there yeah they're fucked up yeah we both love crash and as we refer to it not the oscar winner the good one that's right so i don't know why y'all are mad are so mad about Greta Gerwig and Barbie. What do you expect the Academy to do? It's like yeah, I said in the Discord, like, who? I like ordinary people, but should that have won Best Picture in 1980 over Raging Bull? No. Yeah, it's, it, it is kind of like what I've, uh, a, a joke that I heard, which is if you want to know what the youth were listening to six months ago, just see what music act is playing on Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, so stop giving a fuck about the Academy. And right, yeah. I think Academy voters were probably a significant part of the demographic that were very mad about this movie when it came out because a lot of people were mad about this movie when it came out. Uh, it dropped yeah. in 96 in the United States. At the time, I was working my first job, which was at a movie theater in a godforsaken suburb of Los Angeles. And I was one of the employees assigned to stop teenagers from sneaking into screenings of Crash. <laughs> you, you directed them to Barton Fink. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think I ended up having to stop anyone. It was just the same bourgeois people who went to see the kind of mid-art house bait. Like, like jackass podcasters who go to see poor things and won't shut up about it. <laughs> No, worse, like uh, boomers with money who were going to see like Shine and Sling Blade and eh, Sling Blade's pretty good. Mm. What was the other uh, Oscar bait movie that everyone went to see? Life is Beautiful. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the, uh, the wooden puppet that came to life, Roberto Benigni. Yeah, just uh, a lot of the kind of movies that very middle-brow people go to see and they're like, you know, that was really good. I really enjoyed that. That's a, that's a nice movie. I don't know about it this. It was a feel-good movie. It didn't challenge anything that I already believed. Yes. Yeah. And then you have Crash, which was rated NC-17, which of course was enough to make it radioactive to American mm. exhibitors. It's kind of why that movie classification kind of failed because they were like, let's make a movie rating that will replace the X because people see an X and they think, oh, it's porno, it's it's stigmatizing. And then they proceeded to treat NC-17 rated movies as pornography. In the same way, not just with the rating system, but yeah, the, it doesn't let movies continue to exist on a level playing field for a lot of intangible reasons. It reminds me of Goodhart because I was um, filling in my timesheet for work about you know how much hours do you spend on this task. When a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. So when a rating system dictates what you can and can't do with your movie, the rating system is no longer uh, just a rating system. It is a... It, it, it's a scarlet letter rather than a rating. Right, yeah. It, it colors the movie. It, it uh, prejudices audiences against it. So, And that's a shame because it's a great movie. Yes, and 
it is a shame because this was already going to be a hard sell for a mass audience. Why do you think that is, Jen? Why, why do you say so? It's funny looking back at the movie from 2024 because in this mm -hmm. internet poisoned time where you can access any depravity you can imagine with a few taps on a keyboard, at least until like mm -hmm. the they put the whole internet on lockdown and you can't like look at a titty anymore. Right, yeah. We used to be a real country. We used to be a real <laughs> ARPANET. I can't ever, and I've seen Crash a few times since the first time I saw it and I always think in my smug satisfaction, like, wow, I can't believe anybody would be freaked out by this. <laughs> it's really not that freaky, but <laughs> I mean, it is a... Well, you watch it because you're like, yeah, I get it. Yeah, and it's a movie that on first look is very cold and mechanical, but it the tone is absolutely spot on perfect for that material. Yeah. And tone tone wise, I mean I know what I'm saying it's about like it's about being alive while appreciating being alive while you're alive. It's not an uplifting movie. This is a traumatized reaction and the realization and expression of that understanding where it's like, yeah, we're mortal. We're gonna get fucked up. Our bodies are going to be twisted and broken and scarred. And then we'll die. But it's making peace with that. I think your description is just straight up better than mine. Well, I don't know about you, Jen, but I uh, I do a podcast about this. <laughs> no, and that's that's really true. Even though it was made by a Canadian and I believe shot in Canada, it's hard for me not to see it as being informed by the uniquely American sickness of car culture, something which is kind of metastasized across right. the well, world. These are, but... these are people reacting to the environment they are, that they're forced to live in. It isn't that cars are good or bad, it's that cars are everywhere. That, and so it makes a kind of sense that people's ways of connecting physically with each other is through the medium of car crashes. Yeah, they're reacting to the environment that they are obligated to live within. Yes. You know, if if it if it take if it took place four hundred years ago, it it would be about uh, breaking people on the wheel sexually. Yeah, yeah, breaking people on the wheel. It would have been about meeting a, a demon on a on a, a coffin road. It would it would be just a reflection of the traumas that are you know present in the background of polite society. Damn it, I'm using my horror argument again. Crashes horror there. <laughs> Imagine being erotically crushed by the wheel of an ox cart. While you're fucking Holly Hunter. Or, I don't know, maybe like a Salem witch trial and like, you know, you have a fetish for, for having you know, more stones being put upon you. <laughs> or you're into breath play, but if it's only ever carried out by an angry mob of Puritans. <laughs> they took the dunk tank too far. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I find myself really enjoying these treatments of our mechanized society and how that warps our personalities. Yeah, it's just what that popular author, J.G. Ballard, that accessible Todd in high school author <laughs> was talking about. You have all these myriad forces that are distorting your experience in ways that you really can't understand. I mean, even the book itself is like, hey, read this however you want. You know, I'm not here to make sense of this for you. Yeah, the guy who wanted to fuck Ronald Reagan. Uh, live authentically. What can I say? <laughs> have you read that piece? Uh, I think you sent it to yeah. me. I mean, I mostly was just like, I was flipping through the rest of it and I read Crash. Yeah, you were like, um, huh, words, that's interesting. Or yeah, maybe that huh. was me because I have lost the ability to read. 
This is why we are not a book podcast. Yeah, we're too stupid. Uh, if you want that, go over to our <laughs> friends at Write Good. Um, you talked about trauma shaped by machines. I see this as a story of uh, of transference. I'm taking like a psychological approach to this where it is people who have been traumatized in an event, they are physically, they are aroused by it. You know, it is a, a traumatic fixating experience. So they, they have misinterpreted their body's reaction to this traumatizing event and eroticized it. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm saying that emotion is stimulation plus context. So what's happening in this movie is a number of people were in a car crash that traumatized them, mutilated, scarred them, could have killed them. And now they are fixated on achieving that same level of emotional arousal that they had at the time of the impact, the accident, the, I don't know if there's a sexual metaphor, the culmination of action that they're again searching for. And that it all gets tied up just shows how messy arousal and eroticism and fear and trauma can get, which is absolutely deserving of an NC-17 rating. Yeah, I don't know another way that you could discuss it, but for a lot of people, this was a bridge too far. I think this this got pushed back even at the Cannes Film Festival, Shame. a place where you would think that people would be more open to new cinematic experiences they're rich tv producers i mean <laughs> well there's that yeah. they're looking for what they can sell or not tv but, you know. and nc-17 is a hard sell and to go off what tim was saying about the movie because his his takes on crash are really more incisive than mine are for whatever reason y- yeah it cuts right through like a uh, an errant rearview mirror <laughs> <laughs> yeah just you know pins you like a steering column right to the sternum. Yeah. (laughs) Going off what Tim was saying, I think one of the things that I like so much about this movie is its treatment of material that makes people profoundly uncomfortable. And it isn't just its treatment of sexuality. And saying this without censure, deviant sexuality, sex Mm -hmm. outside of what is considered the norm. And right. a really important component of that is the way that I don't know if my theory has been borne out. It's something which like I've talked about this with some of my freak friends and there is a belief that sexual fetishes are often formed by trauma or fear. And mm-hmm. that's pretty much what Tim was getting at with his description of Crash. And I love any movie that has the gonads to deal with that kind of material, with an open mind. Right. Yeah, and when I say arousal, I don't mean that in a strictly sexual context. I physiologically. Mean that, yeah, physiologically, it has elicited a reaction for from you in a context that you're like, I can't make sense of this, but I do know that when I experience A, I, I feel B. Mm-hmm. If you approach it that way, a lot of, I don't know, fetishes and paraphilias start to make sense where you're like, this was presented in a context that just hit the person a certain way, and that that's how, quote-unquote, deviants are formed. But, you know, lucky for them in Crash, they got a support group. They have people who, like, who get each other. 
you know, it's it's not even stated. That's like they just are speaking the same language, and they they understand this. They have this shared trauma that they are coping with, basically through their through their community of perverts. It is kind of interesting that uh, I realize I brought it full circle with my first pick being a movie about a sexual subculture and my last pick being a movie about a sexual subculture. <laughs> <laughs> so if someone makes a sexy British horror movie... Sold! About, yeah, <laughs> a sexy gay horror action-adventure movie about the end of the world where it turns out the guy who did it was the protagonist, then fuck. We, we can just, we can wrap up then. We'll be like, this is the best movie that will ever be. You want to watch Carry On Screaming? I think that might be the movie. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. <laughs> now we know. And those are our most biggest favorites. Wait, do you have one more? Yeah, we have, we've only gone through four. Lay it on me. Because you said Crash, and Crash was ironically not one of my most favorites, but it is, I guess I'm just numb to it. I just don't even, uh, can't even get off to car crashes anymore. Do you need um, some liquid IV? Oh, shoot, wait, no. I might, yeah. <laughs> Does liquid IV make, like, a, a antifreeze? <laughs> have, they, have they expanded out? Is there an antifreeze flavor? It comes in so many great flavors, like uh, sea berry and antifreeze. And right. Come. <laughs> antifreeze? Mmm. Uh, whenever I'm stopped on the side of the road because I've got to piss in the radiator because it's after the apocalypse and you can't find fresh water anymore, I always like to go for my emergency ration of liquid IV. After the apocalypse, you are going to need to hydrate. You're going to be all out of vitamins B3, 12, 6, and 14. Even C. Yeah, the only vitamin C that you're getting from the environment is C for cadmium. Yeah, don't drink your cadmium red light paint that's not going to do you mm -hmm. any good try liquid iv liquid iv no loads refused right <laughs> if they had like an anti-chelation or is it just regular chelation liquid iv yeah liquid iv it cures you know, autism it purges heavy metals but it also tastes like raspberry lemonade <laughs> they wouldn't need prestigious journalists like us selling this stuff it sells itself that's right that's right tim <laughs> so I did have another movie, and if we're counting correctly, you do too. Nope, no? I covered my whole list. Cruising, Romeo and Romeo, Ghost Watch, Horror Express, Crash, and an honorary mention to Threads. Oh, okay, because I did Dead of Night, Angel Heart, Threads, Horror Express, and then I have one more. How do I only do four? I don't know. Third base. Yeah, okay. All right, well, Jen, I know you didn't prepare five. No, I think we just, we went... We used up one of yours. That's why. Oh, it's because we both liked Horror Express. Right. Yeah. Not a big deal. Um, all right, so Jen's doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, I have one more. That wasn't a shared one, so I guess we just have one extra. I'm not sure how that worked out. But towards the tail end, and we've had a lot of exemplary episodes, but this was episode 91. This was 2006, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Ooh, that's a fun one. Yeah. It was unfairly ignored. It kind of looked like a lot of mid-2000s, like neo-slasher schlock, which was easy to just like, you know, look at it and just like skip next. But no, it is a scythe-sharp satire of horror movies. It is in the mockumentary style. Unusual for horror at the time, 
it didn't look down on its subject. That happened a lot in horror where it became sort of like self-referential. It, it was like, hey, is, isn't this... Uh, isn't this stuff so fake? It doesn't have contempt for horror, which is which you you like in a horror movie. It it, it isn't like relying on cliches or you know, up upending them. It is it, it plays it straight. It doesn't wink at the audience. And I mentioned this on on a thread online where people are talking about movies that really didn't get any any traction unfairly, and they're talking about Edge of Tomorrow, aka Live Die Repeat. Yeah, and um, as you mentioned, there are those movies which were sort of overlooked at the time. And then people came around later to be like, hey, this is actually good. Right, yeah. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah, which is why the show exists, essentially. The case, the thing with Behind the Mask, Rise of Leslie Vernon, is that because I am such a jaded, cynical bitch, when Tim first pitched right, it, this is true. I was like, oh, yeah, geez, like a mockumentary about like slashers, like... That sounds yeah. like something I will not like. And I'm really right, yeah. glad. And this is a mm-hmm. lesson to you, the audience. Sometimes it's good to resist the jaded side of yourself and give something a shot. Because I watched it and I was like, wow. Like, I did not expect to like this as much as I did. But it is really well made. It's very funny. Mm-hmm. It's incisive. Yeah. It's got a clever twist a twist that's mm-hmm. more clever than a lot of straight-faced horror films that are its contemporaries. Yeah, a twist that is earned. Yeah. Yes. It's really good. And if I'm endorsing yeah. it, you know it's good because this is the kind of shit that normally I'm just like, no, no, thank you. But because yeah, it's... Just like, yeah, whatever, yeah, fine. Because it's so well done, it completely won me over. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad that Tim suggested it. Yeah, yeah. And in that thread where I mentioned Behind the Mask, other people chimed in too. And it's great that there are other people who enjoy this movie. But one of the the people who replied to me is like, yes, it is smart and it is just the right amount of mean. And I'm like, yes, that is so true. That's exactly the kind of thing I want to see in my movies. (laughs) Yeah, it it doesn't take the audience as sort of like an ironic uh, smark to, to borrow your wrestling parlance. The protagonist, you know, the the Leslie Vernon character, like he's great because he's he's very charming and he's clearly having fun with being a serial killer or being like a a monster serial killer type. So it it acknowledges tropes without undermining them, which I think a lot of horror movies are too afraid to do, ironically, with being horror. Well, people love to upend tropes. Yeah. But Usually in a way that kind of lacks imagination. Or something that's like, it's demeaning to something that was innovative at the time. Right. And again, yeah, it just becomes that kind of like jaded, like we've seen this before. And it's like, yeah, we have seen this before. And this is a, f- a fresh, affectionate take on these things. Because one of the things that's exciting about the premise as well is you're really seeing, you know, how the sausage is made with being like basically like a Jason Voorhees type. You got to do a lot of cardio, you got you know, you got to learn how to like, you know, scare people just enough to like get them to do the stupid things and it's you know a lot of like fun like nuts and bolts stuff that is playing to the audience's awareness of these things without being like oh isn't this so phony. It's like yes, it is phony. This is deliberate. I'm doing this on purpose. And the reality of the world that they create around that is, you know, the Leslie Vernon character, like he's got his mentor and he's just like this old guy who was for lack of a better term, a low-key serial killer. 
because he was a slasher like back in the day, back in the heyday of slasher movies in the mid 80s. And one of the fun details about this movie is that whenever this guy talks, and he's like just laying down, you know, homespun wisdom about you know, what it's like being basically like a, a, a slasher. And he's like, yeah, I remember like, you know, they're really innovating things. And, you know, when, when I was working with Jay and, you know, then he and I, uh, you know, came up with some new ideas about, you know, where to where where we should take, you know, the slasher things. And, you know, Fred had a lot of interesting ideas. And you're like, ah, I know what he's referencing. Because, you know, Mike kept it really simple. You know, he didn't try and dress it up with any kind of gimmickry. And that's really the purity of it. It's just like, it really, um, you know, changes your uh, uh, your approach to what what the events are in these movies. Like one of the things we talked about, we had Bitter Corella on as a guest. And he's like, okay, so all these are phony. And it's like, well, like the Chucky movies, like is Chucky fake then? Because that was a doll. And it's like, uh, bah, bah, bah. you believe that it is a doll killing people. That's the whole, like, killer kayfabe that's going on here. And just that it immerses itself in this world while acknowledging that it is all a contrived farce. Like, that's that's the movie meeting the slasher genre on its own terms and still being a a satire of this. Yeah, and it's cl- it's done cleverly enough that it doesn't, just feel like fan service yeah because it can be easy to just be lazy and reference things but not contribute anything beyond that yes also that that mentor serial slasher is played by one of my favorite actors scott wilson right and what was he in there's an um the ninth configuration was robert england in the ninth configuration (laughs) i'm trying to think if he's been in other horror movies but yeah, Robert England is in this yes. too. Yeah, he he plays sort of a um, was it Donald Pleasance in was it like the third like uh, Friday the Thirteenth movie? He plays like kind of that character. Halloween. Halloween. Yeah. Thank you. So you see a lot of these tropes coming out, but they aren't tropes just to like be lampshaded. Yes, lampshading is a really good way to 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 put it. Hanging a hat on it. It's right. like, hey, we yeah, know it this is do anything... stupid, but we know you want to see it, so eat your slop, piggies. Yeah, it doesn't do anything dumb as just being like, you know, I, I'm just doing this because you like it. Yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, a fun, self-aware satire, and yeah, like Jen was saying, it it has a twist where we're just like, this is fucking earned. Yes. I'm glad that we got here. I, I, you know, it it is a mockumentary about slasher movies that is a slasher movie, and it's great. All right, so we're going to have to cover our 12 um, uh, <laughs> least favorite movies in negative uh, 32 minutes. So, Jen, go. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can get two extra episodes every month, plus access to our growing catalog of reviews for just $5 a month by going to patreon.com and searching for Have You Seen This? No worries. It's not like I haven't blown like 75 separate takes in this shit. Just another day for Jen.